Welcome to another episode of That Creative Life. It is another Monday fun day. Um, I know for a while I was on a good flow of getting these out every single Monday, 7 a.m. And we'll be back on that flow in 2020. But thank you for your patience in this wonderful holiday season as I edit these podcasts same day. So it's hitting a little bit later today and Monday. But if you have those notifications turned on, well, guess what? it'll be no problem. I hope you enjoy this one. Um, It is with two special guests that have been on this podcast before we get into how to reach the right audience. It's maybe not all about the numbers. Social media marketing consulting, VC funding versus bootstrapping, and we talk about cities again. What is the value of maybe living in a New York City or a San Francisco versus other places? I hope you guys enjoy this. Thank you for tuning in. This is exciting. Very exciting. <laughs> I think people have been wanting a part two for this podcast for a minute because we have Nick and David back. Woo! Woo. If you guys want to listen woo. to our first podcast with these guys after or before, um, I will link it in the description below. It was such a good one. I, I've never gotten better feedback from a podcast than when you guys were on. So it's That's good awesome. to have you back. I think you just blew people's minds last I, time. I was telling you before, I get texts and uh, yeah. tweets all the time about that podcast. I love it. I love it. Um, so let's do a quick intro for the people who don't know you. And then we're just going to dive into stuff because already when you guys, you know, we're, you came in, we're hanging out. We were already getting into some really good conversations. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, guys, we, we need to put the mics in front of our, in front of our uh, mouth holes. Words are great. Nick, let's start out with you. So I'm Nick. Um... I feel like I was in a very different spot last time we recorded this podcast. Um, I am basically a direct-to-consumer e-commerce retail brand consultant and um, most notably, I guess, worked with Hintwater and uh, built their direct-to-consumer, then went to VaynerMedia and built their direct-to-consumer, and then throughout the year, I've just been consulting with a bunch of brands from Vox Media, launching a brand like Lemon Perfect, working with, you know, uh, brands like Chacha Matcha, um, who else? Some other fun ones in there. But um, basically just working with brands and uh, helping them grow. That's kind of like my jam now. I'm David Perel. I run a writing school called Rite of Passage. So I have students right now in 28 countries. I forgot about that. So much time has passed that yeah. you launched this huge thing. Yeah. So we have we, we have students all over the place, Nigeria, Singapore, Chile, Panama, Australia, New Zealand. And it's a five-week program, really intense, teach people how to become citizens of the internet. And we do that through through writing. So it is has blossomed into a global community of super intellectually curious people. And then beyond that, I have a podcast of my own. I'll publish on my website 200,000 words this year which is roughly the equivalent of three and a half books and just an overall curious human being. How often in between, like, tell me what you got going on with the newsletter and your site. And of course, now with your course, but I think on this podcast and the people I'm around all the time, we're always talking about video and YouTube videos. Oh, posting two to three times a week or, you know, we clip stuff up. But I think writing is such a, not a lost art form, um, but it has changed so much. So it is always refreshing to talk to someone whose main thing is writing. 
Yeah, so I have a just like the way that the YouTube algorithm is designed and helps people who are prolific, the same thing also exists with writing. So I have a Monday newsletter called Monday Musings, a Friday newsletter called Friday Finds. The Monday one is the most interesting ideas that I have every week. And then the Friday one is the most interesting things that I come across every week. And that's more of a links newsletter. But, you know, the big thing that I've discovered about writing versus video is in an aggregate sense, the world is moving towards video. So if you look at the explosion and the number of minutes of people watching YouTube, the Despacito music video, which is uh, actually worth talking about in a sense because 6.5 billion people watch that video, making it the most seen maybe thing in human history um in terms of videos yeah well it's 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 a fantastic song and amazing video and so if you just look at the average person they're spending a lot more time watching video but if you look at the very smartest people in the world they are consuming more of the written word than ever and Mm -hmm. For me, I don't really care about how many people I reach. I just care about reaching the smartest people in the world. Mm -hmm. And they are consuming information through text. Which is something I I think we can jump right into. One of the things we wanted to talk about is it doesn't necessarily, it depends what you want to do. But the most important thing isn't always just getting numbers. I remember in the beginning of my YouTube channel, it was all about finding the right people because I wanted production uh, jobs. I wanted weddings. So I'm like, okay, if a hundred people watch this wedding on my YouTube channel, maybe two are going to hire me for, you know, a thousand dollar wedding. Um, and so when you're looking at things in terms of like, I want to be YouTube famous, or I want to be a TikTok star. Um, of course, it's contextual to the platform, but in a lot of ways, if you look at it with, hey, I'm gonna focus on reaching the right audience. Who is the right audience for me? Um, I think that's when things can really change for you. You know, maybe for Nick, it's like, screw Facebook and YouTube, but what's my game like on LinkedIn and Twitter? Cause that's where the people who you need to reach out are, right? Yeah, um, there was also, there's, um, I don't know if you've seen this platform community for texting, but they oh yeah we've seen have it. yeah you guys have probably all seen it. But I mean everyone from uh, Gary V, Ashton Kutcher, Ninja, Ninja, Marshmallow, G Easy, like everybody's yeah. on this texting platform. And I was with Zach Normandin, the Dirty Lemon founder, yesterday, and we were talking about how you know at because Dirty Lemon's a, a text-based e-commerce platform, mm. or that's how you buy the product is you text in. And so, you know, we were talking about, well, you know, it's this game of you have brands like Zach who focus on one to one interaction over text and then a transaction. And then you have brands like Brooklinen, which will send you like maybe two texts a day sometimes with Hmm. sales. And And people don't get annoyed by that. Well, people do get annoyed. But then it's also like, you know, we were talking about like how how quickly this channel is going to become corrupt because yeah. the, I mean, anybody with a flip phone to an iPhone can get a text. It's very accessible. And so we were just talking about, again, back to like, how important is it with the people you're interacting with? If you text Marshmallow five times and you don't get a response, you are just going to give up and you're going to realize that all you're going to get is localized ticket sales and merch that's drops what's happening and with album Gary. drops. Yeah. They're, they're upsetting and, more people than I feel like they're making them happy. Yeah. And, and so, you know, then we were talking about it in the context of how we use it because he only, 
he doesn't send anything out to customers. It's only if you want something, it's more of a convenience factor to text in gotcha. rather than go it's use a, a site. It's a tool, yeah. And the way I use it is kind of similar where like it's a it's a place where instead of people, you know, DMing me and saying, "Can I have 5 minutes of your time or can we chat on the phone for 15 minutes or get coffee?" It's just like, "Well, just text me and I'll just get back to you on text." And yeah just the yeah. point of like the the importance of numbers because at the end of the day if your if your engagement dies then you just you're kind of going backwards in what social media has become which is mm -hmm. like broadcast to really one-to-one -one, and then it goes backwards the other way yeah. well and you're going deep with people which my i hate the word payoff but it'll probably pay off in, yeah in some in sense long i mean run. i've invested yeah. in a company that came in through the tax platform there you go um Chacha Macha as a client came through that. Yeah. So it's paid off in its own ways. Totally. And David, kind of talk to your audience who reads your newsletters, who reads your blog posts. And did you have the intention in the beginning with, okay, this is my ideal reader? Or did you notice that, oh, the actual topics that I'm interested in, that I'm talking about, is actually curating a very interesting audience? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. More the second. So I always say that having an online audience is like having your own personal artificial general intelligence. So basically what you end up having is you have two different ones. The first is when it comes to recommendations of like you have your own personal Google search. So whatever you need, you ask for recommendations. I get personalized recommendations from people who actually know me quite well. And what I can do is I can take a look at all the recommendations, see which ones are coming up time and again, and then whether it's a restaurant, a new city, or some kind of book recommendation or a podcast to listen to. Once I see a couple people recommend them, then I say, huh, I'll move that to the top of the queue. But then also in terms of what writing has been able to do is people share the writing and yeah, it the audience is a decent size. I'll get a million visitors on my site this year, but it actually gets up to the, for example, I've built a very close friendship and are now working on a project with the CEO of the most valuable startup in the entire world. Uh, I won't say who it is, but you can kind of infer who that is. Um, and then there are certain investors that I'm able to meet with, early investors in Uber, Airbnb, and stuff like that. And then different um, different conferences that you get invited to that are a bit private and stuff like that. And so Time and again, I have noticed that what writing is great for is it's very good at being shared and the actual people who I have always wanted to meet, the people who are obsessed with ideas, your writing just begins to attract those people. And what you're doing is you're almost sending like a radio frequency into the world and that radio frequency is passing person A, person B, person C, person D. And then what ends up happening is the right people begin to find it. They get on your frequency and they end up subscribing to your newsletter and whatnot. And the amount of work that I do doesn't really increase, but the number of people that I reach does. And I'm always trying to increase the rigor and the erudition of the actual work that I'm doing. And then that work kind of gets passed along somehow through the back alleys of the internet and then makes its way to just some amazing people who I've been able to meet that were even now at 25 years old. I've been in situations this year that are cooler than anything I thought I'd be in in my entire life. Mm -hmm. You have the writing course now, but what... 
in the beginning when you're someone who just wants to write you have a lot of ideas you could i mean you read so much um and you you find this path where it's like this is what i'm supposed to do i'm supposed to write what was the first um like way that you monetized because even with writing above anything else i feel like with video okay you get a job at a production company or you there's tons of videos to be made but i feel like reporters i feel like even freelance reporters just get paid nothing it seems like so what was that was it intimidating in the beginning what did you do in the very beginning yeah i mean if you're a writer you don't really monetize by writing that is the the big thing it's sort of a marketing expense for the rest of your life and what it does is it brings people into your life who can then create other opportunities so a couple examples for you if i want to start a business and i need investors i will have no problem now raising millions of dollars because i'm building trust week by week with a certain number of people then in terms of my ideas you know you mentioned that i read a lot one of the things that i've changed around this year is i'm reading a lot less now and more spending a lot more time in interesting conversations so i've built an amazing intellectual posse almost of people in New York and we have different book clubs and different discussion groups um, and those happen multiple times every single week so like every Tuesday night we have a religious studies discussion group we hired a PhD in philosophy from Columbia to tutor me and a bunch of friends in 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 philosophy and the people who are in that group are basically the some of my most interesting readers of which, you know, all these people reach out and then you pick the ones who are the most interesting. And over time that begins to compound. And then you get these sort of accumulating advantages where interesting people reach out, you have more interesting ideas, then more interesting people reach out. Um, and then finally, then the way I've monetized this is through a writing school, we're going to do about half a million dollars in revenue in our very first year. I didn't pay a cent in organic advertising. And ultimately what I want to be doing is to become some kind of center for the most interesting ideas from people and then have those ideas email be emailed to me sort of in their early instantiations. And so, yes, on one hand, writing is a terrible way to make money. But on the other hand, it actually gets you in the room and opens the kinds of doors mm -hmm. that are tremendously lucrative. And that is the point, guys. So if you have something that you think can open those doors, that's what matters, not necessarily how much Google AdSense am I going to make off of if I get it to 100,000 views per week or stuff? You know, I mean, there's so many different ways um, to look at it. And Nick, you've recently done the transition from working for companies to now working for yourself, but now more of the consulting vibe. Um, you know, you have a couple people under your wing helping you. First of all, how has that transition been for your person? Are you more stressed out? Are you less stressed out? What's, how are you, Nick? Um, <laughs> <laughs> are you tired, Nick? There's a, a lyric that I always say, I'm still alive, but I'm barely breathing. <laughs> it's a, it. it's a grind. It's, yeah. it's really a grind. Like there's, um, it's really hard. There's a there's a lot there's a lot of things you just don't even think about. Like we were talking about things like even understanding contractors versus payroll and what payroll entails, um, hiring people, uh, staffing properly, um, time management. You know, um, I've noticed that the 
my relationships with people have changed just because constraints of my time. Um, I've started valuing probably over the last like couple months, definitely started valuing my own personal wellness a lot more. So now I aim for like eight hours of sleep a night, which has yeah. made a huge difference. Good. Um, shout out to eight sleep for that. Um, what is eight sleep? So eight like a sleeps, Twitter account or something? My, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, do you need eight a Twitter account to a, remind you no, to sleep eight, eight hours? Sleep's a mattress. It's a mattress, <laughs> oh. but it's like it's it heats and cools on its own. Okay, no, and it just it DTC helps you sleep okay. ten times better. Interesting. And so, so I've been getting like eight hours of sleep. Um, I've been working out pretty hard every day and it's just made such a big difference um i don't go out as much i don't really drink at all anymore um it's like it's it's a grind but you learn to adjust to it Mm -hmm. oh yeah and i (laughs) very much like the process because i also know it's not gonna be here forever like i'm not gonna it's not gonna be like you know 10 years later i'm gonna be grinding from 7 a.m to 11 p.m every day Mm -hmm. But um, I figured, you know, I was talking to, I was in a taxi the other day and I was talking to the taxi driver. He makes an average of $200 a day and $170, $70 goes straight to the company as the metered fees and then $100 a day for leasing the taxi. What? So he nets like 30 to 50 bucks a day driving a taxi. And I was just like, if this guy does this for 13 hours a day, I shouldn't really complain. Yeah. Wow. So. Okay, um, Uber has to be better than that. Well, that's what I said. I was like, bro, have you heard of Uber? Yeah. He was like, yeah, but the problem is they don't give out any more. Uh, you have to basically get the TCP, like... The medallion, medallion. thing. Yeah, yeah, but... They don't give if, those anymore. Yeah, but if you're getting paid shit, then what's the point? Totally. I mean, teach their like, own. Like, I understand that they created this whole messed up yeah. system I was, where people feel... I was feel- more shocked by the economics of a taxi driver. Mm-hmm. I was like, you know, with $3,000 a month, you can lease a $100,000 car mm-hmm. minimum. And, um, but it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. That's insane. Yeah. But anyways, it's been the, a grind. Yeah. And let's talk about the logistics of consulting. Cause I had this, um, I had this epiphany the other day that yes, I work for myself and I'm a YouTuber, but I'm essentially myself into client business. Yeah. Exactly. Like all of the brands that I interface with and try to not make them upset by, you know, giving them the video a day late or whatever. Um, you know, it's not the traditional agency sense at all. There's still a lot of, you know, Sarah Peachy personality. It's my content. Um, but at the end of the day, when you're working with other people, you have people's expectations you have to worry about. Right. Um, and now that that's shifted from maybe one or two bosses to now, you know, five six people with their own teams and their own problems and their own aspirations um logistically how do you manage all that or do you do you have like a a battleground of like asana or like in slack or like what is your central hub for project management so i i call it controlled chaos because i i can't do the whole asana thing and i can't ever I mean, I've tried this for years to get a a proper notes app or organization app yeah. on my phone that syncs with my computer. It just doesn't work because really? I feel like I like to cross shit out. Yeah. And I like to scribble. And so I like you're to make a physical, circles. so you yeah, have like so a I, notepad? I have a huge whiteboard, like okay. a massive whiteboard I in my apartment. I love whiteboards, yes. And then I have, and then on my table, I have a notepad 
like a, a legal notepad, yeah. which I write on. Look Dave's at all of us his, with uh, our like list. notepads and, yeah, and crap. <laughs> I, I, mean, I have like, I love playing with pens with my fingers. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I have to write things out and I have to circle things and I have to draw like, yeah, I'm very visual in that sense. But, um, that's like, you know, getting a to-do list, but on a day-to-day level, I have gotten pretty good at my scheduling. So, you know, I have, um, I have an assistant now that's full-time and she handles all my calendar. She handles basically anything that's just admin work that I don't want to spend my time doing. Um, and that's helped out tremendously. I mean, shaved hours off my week. Um, and then, you know, outside of that, it's just, it's a lot of pre-planning. It's like, you know, Sunday afternoons aren't, you know, get drunk at brunch and go <laughs> bar hopping. It's like you go home and you start planning for the week. And, you know, you know that the next day you have five important meetings and you make notes for each one of them and, mm-hmm. you, and you do your homework. And yeah, it's just that's grind. something that whenever I talk to someone and they're like, I'm going to make the leap, I'm going to, you know, work for myself and blah, blah, blah. But then very slowly they kind of start breaking it down and how they're scared and like oh but I really value this and that and it's like I don't think just because there's this wave of people making it cool doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to run their own business because I'm like guys when you are at a nine to five I'm sure unless you work for a certain startup you have time off you have weekends you know like you have proper weekends and like I think what people don't realize is when you're working for yourself, it really never stops. There's there's a certain um, thing, I guess, in me where I just, because I've always been doing it this way, I can't imagine it any, any other way. That's me too. You know? I just, I don't see, I mean, like we, for Thanksgiving break, my family and I went to Yosemite. I was up at, I mean, we were on vacation. I was up at 6 a.m. Yeah. I worked out. I went to the lobby with my laptop and I was on my laptop till like 9 yeah. And then we had breakfast and then and then the laptop goes away. But it's like, yeah. I can't imagine what it's <laughs> like to not be working. <laughs> Good for you, though, to take a vacay. Yeah, right? <laughs> I don't think I've had one in a while. <laughs> um, um, but no, it's, it's a totally different. Yeah. And I think it has to do with, you know, the time of your life that you're into. Yeah. If you're not trying it in your 20s, what are you even doing? Like, this is the yeah. time. Well, that's to the thing. It's like, I feel on, like, man. yeah, you just go at it and yeah. see what happens. And, you know worst case you get a job or you know whatever but you can always pivot um but it's been it's been fun and i've realized that i get a lot more control over my schedule which is nice so like a few weeks ago david and i just decided on a whim we're gonna fly to chicago for a concert love it which was a lot of fun what concert we went to go so we saw for david's birthday we saw lenium at madison square garden nice and and then it was dave that was like a friday or saturday his birthday was on a sunday or monday we went to dinner and a few drinks after we ended up just buying flights and concert tickets in <laughs> Chicago. We were like, it was such a good show. Oh and, my gosh. Um, so the same show. Exact same show, like Love track it. for track. And it was, you know, 10 times as fun. Let's talk about, let's pivot, as you said, and talk about VC funding versus grass, grass rooting. Um, because 
Because <laughs> Nick, I mean, you work with a lot of com- DTC brands or just lifestyle brands who are pumped with venture capital um, for better or worse. Um, and so we're really in, I think, a system that is a little bit high on their own supply of just millions of dollars floating around. Really, anyone with a decent idea can grab onto it. And there's some good things that come from it. And I feel like there's some bad things that come from it. So from a person who's you know, not working for these brands, but coming alongside them and helping. What are some things that you've noticed that, oh man, this came in clutch because if they didn't have this, it would have been game over versus what are they doing? Like yeah. with this millions of dollars. <laughs> A lot, I mean, um, most of the companies that I work with have raised millions of dollars in venture. And, you know, they, I think the biggest thing that, that gets taken away especially in the earlier stages is the creativity because you you got to be creative I mean, like, when think there's about limits. like david when you when you buy a piece of furniture you're just like oh i'll just pay somebody to do it it's much better right you just kind of throw capital at the problem so that's a, that's what a lot of these startups are doing um a lot of them are are just chasing like oh you know did you see what this company did with their thing that's what we want to do right i get that all the time um, but I mean, it's also, you know, there's, there's so much capital out there, mm-hmm. so much capital and it's for the, on the venture side, it's a numbers game, right? Mm-hmm. Like they will put capital into a hundred things and Just hope that two one. of them pop yeah. and, and make all their money back. I saw an interesting, I mean, you guys know of angelist but they put out this big report recently um and they were saying basically the not the only way to win but the trends that they were seeing is spread out your money and you're bound to have you know one or two hits so if you think something's a good idea just invest well that's easy to say so they're starting base uh i'm saying basically too much okay that's my new word guys i'm establishing it now basically it was a before and now it's basically no more basically (laughs) i'm self-checking i'm sorry guys (laughs) but they're starting an index fund for startups in angelus interesting right are normal people now going to be investing in startup index funds i don't know is that the future does that seem as reliable as investing in a blue chip index fund no um but it's an interesting world that we're living in. Yeah, everyone wants a slice of the pie. Everyone That's wants a why slice the money's the out there. And the craziest part is sometimes when I talk to investors, they they just like they don't understand <laughs> the the business model sometimes. But sometimes it's a trendy thing that you or, or has nice aesthetic and they'll yeah. put money into it. But I mean, you know, you see companies that raise. 100 200 300 million dollars uh-huh. and then it's it's just crazy and it doesn't sometimes it's like what you said it's trendy yeah it really doesn't have any unique advantage it no, really I mean, doesn't solve look at look at casper right yeah. casper is has raised so many millions of dollars how many do you know i'm gonna look it up. i don't check crunch base though okay maybe david you can check and and even away, right? They've raised almost $200 million. Wow. And some of these companies, like they, I don't know what the the 
the need for raising an insane amount of capital like that is. But, you know, it, most of it goes straight toward marketing. Yeah. It's and $340 million, by the way. For Casper? Yeah. It's insane. And then they have to keep, you know, rebranding themselves. They yeah. went from a mattress company. Now they're, now I think they're about sleep. Away is, uh, they sell a suitcase, but they're about travel. Everyone goes from this one product to, oh, no, but it's we a lifestyle. Yeah. And a lot of it's just smoke and mirrors. Um, and I mean, when to be fair, I do enjoy hits, my my away suitcase. Away is a great suitcase. I will say they were in the headlines recently, guys. We're not going to go into it, um, but they did replace their CEO. Um, but that hard shell suitcase has stuck with me for the past three years and I still use the same one. Yeah, I still have the one you gave me. It's pretty durable. Heck yeah. Oh, Heck yeah. yeah. Remember that? Forgot about that. Yeah. The black one. Yep. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot of these um, a lot of these companies are just not going to be recession proof. Mm -hmm. When people become strapped for cash, they're just going to, you know, a lot of these companies are just going to starve because their entire business model is predicated on just going out and fishing for customers mm -hmm. every single day. And, and how the crazy. second they can't do that, they're going to starve. And how crazy is it for us in our age group? 25? I'm 23. 23, which is so crazy when I'm always reminded that you're younger than me. I hate that, Nick. <laughs> it's crazy, though, that we ourselves haven't lived through really a recession Yeah. in our adult life. Our parents, poor parents, had to go through two back to back <laughs> in 01 and 07, yeah. you know, our, our poor parents. But we've really gone through this. 10 years of just everything's fine everything's okay everyone's being weighed down by college debt but everything's fine yeah. <laughs> right it's that meme with the fire going yeah everything's yeah. fine i promise david let's talk about venture capital and grass rootin'. what does grass rootin mean for the people out there i don't know you tell me okay well is am i saying it right Bootstrapping. Bootstrapping. Why did I say grassrootin'? <laughs> <laughs> I am on a roll today. <laughs> if, okay, this has been a common theme that I literally take words and just make them completely different you're, things. You're, you're naturally creative. You know, let's, I have a theory about this. Let's call it that. No, 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 I, no, I'm totally serious. I have a theory about this. So many of my best ideas have come from getting things entirely wrong. <laughs> Coming up with a new idea. Bootstrapping is now grass rootin', guys. Grass rootin'. Here Somebody we go. else saying that that's a good idea and then just running with it. <laughs> right? Like how many times have you been editing a video and you've said, I'm going to do this. And then you've made a mistake. Mm -hmm. And then that mistake led you to something that was much more interesting than that's what you already had. That's the story had. of my college life. I mean, when I was doing electrical engineering and I was trying anything and everything, seeing what was sticking on the wall, that's when really I found my voice in video. So yeah. I should probably nail down my words better. So grass I'm, for everyone. Since I'm a podcaster. <laughs> it's crazy that, yeah, a person who has over 60, 70 episodes of a podcast and she's terrible at talking. Anyways, David. Sarah. It's Sarah. From Texas. <laughs> From Texas. <laughs> like, I'm like a fusion of uh, Southern and, nor and Northerners. Northerners. You know, okay, I'm going to do one more tangent. Do you guys listen to Office Ladies podcast? It's, did you watch The Office? Yeah. Okay, okay. So it's Pam and Angela, and they started Whoa. a podcast. And they're, 
they're taking each episode and doing a rewatch and then telling you little nuggets and things that the the viewers wow. should know. Wow, the so, internet is amazing. Wow. Example, 8,074. Exactly. It's the best thing ever. But Angela was recently talking about how she's from Texas and Louisiana and she can't say verb, like whenever there's a vowel in front of an L. I'm trying to think of what example. Um, say or call yeah call or what was the example she gave i hate but i basically resonated with it i'm gonna cut this entire thing probably (laughs) um but when she said i was like that's so true those are the words that i struggle with i don't sound like a texan right but sometimes the words i have a certain draw and it comes out anyways you know one thing that i do really like about the internet is commentary culture yeah so a couple things come to mind so once you get the background of something all of a sudden that thing becomes way more interesting Mm. okay the my 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 favorite example of this is all the restaurants that go on chef's table and then become super popular Mm. right so you go and you see noma for for Copenhagen and all of a sudden people are going to these amazing restaurants because you see behind the scenes behind the scenes culture is fascinating to me and uh, little embarrassed to admit this but it's a true story and I'm confident in my identity I spent so I my friend landed in New York and I sent him the welcome to New York music video of the live tour okay this is a four and a half minute performance and I was almost in tears. I was like, this is peak human ingenuity. Taylor Swift is up there just rocking it. It's you a see, live performance? It's a live okay. performance of her in Where, Sydney, Australia. Okay. And Welcome to New York is 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 her this. outro. Or, okay. or, or sorry, the first thing that she says. So she gets up on stage. She's got these glasses. She comes out. And everyone in the audience has lights. So they have coordinated lights. And then whoever edited this video did an amazing job of overlaying the visuals with the video. So was it like a fan edit? Slow-mo. No, it was super professional edit. Oh, okay. So then... (laughs) <laughs> this was from the her her I think 1989 world world tour. So I went on Spotify and I listened to all the commentary <laughs> for the 1989 world tour. Honestly, that would probably be fascinating because whenever Taylor Swift came out with her red album, yeah, because I never liked country music, so I never really got into her. Then she made the red album. I was hooked. All like the drops that she had in her music, the way she was fusion fusion fusing pop in different genres by the way i figured out the word it was filthy (laughs) (laughs) filthy it's very hard to say words like that without being southern say filthy it's very hard to just say filthy (laughs) say say filthy filthy okay all right filthy that's what you do with veils in front of ales you need a separate character. <laughs> if, you're, if you're from the South. Anyways, an I love Taylor Swift. <laughs> Taylor Swift started off country. I mean, Nashville, yeah. sort of like yeah. you. Yep. Born and raised, sort of, what is that? The, there's, there, the Bible Belt? The, well, 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 the music part of Nashville is away from downtown Nashville. It's over kind of by Vanderbilt, 
where all the studios are, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, I was only there for nine months. I'm born and raised in Dallas, and then I moved to Nashville for only nine months. Um, but it's everywhere, dude. Country music is Nashville. Yeah. It, it really is. It's just everywhere you go, every restaurant has a different tone because they don't have they don't have the pop stations on. It's It was a very unique place that I got out of very quickly. It's very cool, though. Just wasn't for me. Let's get back to bootstrapping. To bootstrapping. <laughs> now that I... Grassrooting. Grassrooting bootstrapping. Well, I think that if you look at the global investment market, venture capital represents like 2% of all the money that goes into it. So it is an extremely small... So maybe it's just starting. ...part of... Well... Maybe. <laughs> but it's an extremely small part of the entire investment world, mm-hmm. but it gets the outsized influence because the small percentage of success stories from venture capital do end up going to become the super big companies. And one of the weird paradoxes that we have is everyone's like, oh, this is the golden age of entrepreneurship. But the actual rate of new company formation in America is going down. And it's a bit of a peculiar thing. Now, there are some interesting explanations for this. One thing that's interesting is that in 1960, 40% of the time when you got a new job, you ended up also moving a house. Now that number has gone down to 10%. The number of Americans who are moving across state lines is also going way down. And there was a book called The Complacent Class by Tyler Cowen that sort of recounts this in detail, basically saying that Americans are becoming more complacent, more stagnant, less dynamic than ever. And it's a weird sort of narrative thing to consider with all of the venture capital that is actually getting the outsized attention. So you end up in this very, like one of my core beliefs about what to work on is to work on things that are outside of the spotlight because everybody works on things that are inside the spotlight. Like one thing is, um, you know, you see this in certain certain statistics. In in 2007, 50% of Harvard graduates w- went into either um, investment banking or management consulting. 50% went into two jobs. And what you see is the entire... Ivy League school system and the entire track of where we're putting people into is basically investment banking, management consulting, and then you could add law and medicine. That's sort of the track that you come out of these Ivy League schools with. So what you end up finding is those are the places where there's tons and tons and tons of competition. And those are the jobs and the industries that swallow ambitious people who aren't ambitious because they want to work on something that is transcendent or something that comes from their own internal desire. It is ambitious people who think that just because something is competitive, it Mm. is worth working on. And they want to be first within the system. Exactly. So what you actually end up seeing going back to venture capital is the percentage of companies that succeed is very low and even if in aggregate venture capital in a world where it's low interest rates where it's very hard to actually have a good return on your money i could see yeah venture capital might be a good place where to 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 put your money but you actually talk to these entrepreneurs and half of the companies it seems are totally fraudulent run by 
people who are wildly incompetent. Why are people so scared of using that fraudulent word? Because, I mean, you see it on the biggest scale what we're seeing with freaking WeWork. And it is downright, just the numbers do not match up. It is propped up by hype. Remember when everyone thought they were the smartest people because they read that article about WeWork isn't a startup it's actually a real estate company or something um and so collectively collectively everyone was like oh yes we work so smart they're buying up properties and blah 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 but their economics didn't make sense the money you know and i think there's this notion of spend 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 you'll worry about monetizing later and it's like whoa 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 what happens when you even SaaS companies when when you have a tool this is a tool that has innate value to people and you could just charge maybe ten dollars a month to start out and maybe that's not the right pricing you figure that out but when you're giving away stuff for free and then people just expect everything for free and then 10 years maybe five years later you decide to monetize you freak everyone out yeah i mean so 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 the alternative to venture capital and this is the side of the economy that people don't see. The economy is so much bigger than people realize. There are people who do the most random thing. If you look at your zipper, it is probably made, yep, mine is made by YKK. It is a Japanese company that's worth like hundreds of millions of dollars and they have a near monopoly on making zippers. And then there are people, my my friend owns a business that makes the filament, you know, like when you walk by an office space and there's that cover on glass so oh, yeah. that you can't actually see through Right across it. the street. So there is globally one company, I, one of a, a, a couple companies, apparently this is extremely hard to do and requires very specialized knowledge. He owns this business. And my point is, there is so much visibility into venture capital. We're going to build the next Facebook or finance and management consulting. We're going to go into these industries that everybody else is going into and therefore it's worth our time. Where the happiest people in aggregate that I meet are people who are, who raise no venture capital. They're running their own businesses. They, they have a very low cost basis. Often they're software companies. They don't have a lot of competition. They solve some kind of narrow problem and a large percent of the percentage of them are making millions of dollars a year. They have a couple employees. No one's ever heard about them and they're basically invisible in the world. And I think that we should be promoting that so much more than this venture capital lunacy fiasco that we've gotten into, even though it has built some amazing companies. And even though some of the very best people I know are venture capitalists, we need to remember that as an industry, venture capital is almost too good at marketing for society's good. Mm-hmm. Unpack that last statement, Nick. Boom. What was that last statement? Venture capital is too good at marketing for society's good. It's oh my like... God. They're... Well, yeah, every VC <laughs> is basically like their own personal brand now. Yeah, it's like yeah. a, it's a thing t- if you're an investor that you have a Twitter following and you have your blog and a newsletter and your weekly roundups and your it's <laughs> interesting. It's a whole world. It's, a it's whole crazy. World. And I think what a lot of people 
I wouldn't say don't like, but they bring up that some of the smartest people in the world that should be working on real problems are trying to start the next Facebook. And there's this argument that, hey guys, how do we reward people who are actually working on problems that will change everyday life of transportation and energy and all of these things that I think people are yearning for answers, but it's not super sexy to go on. And maybe um, maybe because people see the financial rewards of starting the next Facebook or something, they don't want to venture down that path of let's try to solve solar panels and blah, 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 etc. Um, yeah, that's more of a comment than a question. Yeah, Thoughts, I Nick? I mean, I completely agree with everything David said. <laughs> Any more thoughts, David? I, f- I, I see you churning over. Yeah, I, you know, there's also just so many opportunities and things that people are actually struggling with that people should, these are just massive markets. And if you're trying to work on the kinds of projects that there's going to be economic demand for, there's obvious solutions. For example, we have a now, the world is becoming an old person's home. We have a massively aging population. We have a massive class of baby boomers that are about to get older and older. I've seen it with my grandparents on both sides. We've, 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 I've lost both my grandfathers and then my, both my grandmothers are both fairly old. And I was on the phone with my grandmother last week. She hates being in an old person's home. So, yeah, my my grandparents on my dad's side have now they're on their third home, and so much of it is just crazy. Um, the way that it actually doesn't meet the needs that they need. They felt like the first one they were in, they felt like they were living in a hospital. Um, and you know, for people who have built their lives and are used to living decent lives, and then you stick them in this hospital environment that they're still paying like 10k a month for, because the point is that you're close to medical professions if anything happens, right? Um, but they recently they had to go through a few more transitions, and now they're actually at a place that is cheaper because they're essentially not living on top of a hospital now, but there's still pr- professionals around. Um, but it's more like a normal apartment and they have walls to hang their art on. And there's certain just niches within that, like you're saying um, that, oh my gosh, guys, if you think about that, our world is running on baby boomers right now. Look who's in office. Look who like, just look at the world we're in. We're living in a baby boomer world. What are some solutions you can come to for that? That's so true. There is, the the best way of describing San Francisco, and it's due to the venture capital model, is that San Francisco is assisted living for young adults. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Which I've always loved. You know, it's like your dry cleaners and stuff. But like, there's actually a huge market for assistant live, uh, assisted guess living what? for those, old people. Guess what? Those people have been building up their nest eggs for the past 60 years and they're ready to spend. It's a huge market. You I know? mean, and it's only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. right? And that is the kind of thing that I worry that maybe the Japanese are going to outrace us here because mm-hmm. they already have that aging population. So just right there, that's one place that you can go. And there, uh, look at me. I have a niche little writing school that is 
wildly profitable year one, and we're not going to raise any venture money. I have students all over the world. I get to do basically whatever I want all day um, because it's such a perfect match for my skill set, what I like doing, and what the world needs. I have... I work with one person who's in Mexico City, I work with another one who's in Los Angeles, and we all do this remote thing. It's a very small little minor problem that I had that I wanted to solve for other people, and there's three of us in the organization, and the school's made more than a million dollars, right? So it's like, there are so many of these little niches, and the big thing is you have to just realize that what everybody is focusing on almost by definition is like the things that you shouldn't be focusing on but we live in an entire world that's hyper imitative where everyone just imitates what other people are doing and so like what is in the news is people think of oh this is the new hot thing I need to get into it I actually think of that as a negative signal. So if something is popular in the news, everybody's talking about it, that means I have a lot of competition. So let me go somewhere else and build something that either solves my own problems or solves the problem of somebody that I love or a market that I know well and don't raise any venture money. Nobody's talking about this, Mm -hmm. but it seems to be a big piece of low-hanging fruit in society. 100%. I think this is a a good moment to talk about um, how, yeah, our parents kind of have no idea what we're doing. I would take a bit of a different tack on this question that I think that the more interesting orientation here is that there are certain things about this world that are fundamentally different. And we've come to a time where the things that worked for people for so long no longer actually work. We've had, for example, in education, we've had inflation credentialism, where what happened was in the 1950s, 1960s, my dad was born in 52, my mom 58. When they went to college, it wasn't nearly as competitive, and you could actually get a pretty good job right out of college. Now, what you've actually been seeing is that college now isn't enough. So then you end up, you take out loans for college, then you go to graduate school. And it's like you're following this track for more and more years, which is why you end up having all these people who are six figures in debt, 30 years old. They say, oh my goodness, I'm hyper-educated. I can't get a job. What's going on here? And you have that showing up all over the place. If you look at the percentage of people who are, say, call ourselves digital natives now, the percentage of us who own a house at our age, it's actually gone way down, right? So you have our parents who are saying, when are you going to buy our home? When are you going to buy your first car? Turns out things are a little bit different due to the way that money is structured in society. And so what I have said is I'm not going to follow the track that my parents had assumed I was going to follow. I'm going to set out my own path a little bit more. And the funny thing here is, I don't even know what I'm doing sometimes, but it took a lot of courage to say, you know what? I have a felt sense that this isn't going to work. I remember telling one of my teachers senior year spring, right as school was beginning to end, this college system that you're running here, I always say I graduated in 2016. I had the best communications education for 1996, 20 years behind and I remember telling her exactly this she thought I was crazy and I said 
I'm sorry, but I think that the vast majority of colleges are going to be out of business in 20 years. She if, looked at if me. If we let them fail, David. She looked at me like I was going to be crazy. Last year, Clayton Christensen, Harvard Business School professor, predicted that in the next 10 to 15 years, 50% of mm. American colleges are going to go out of business. And Please. Sure. Yes. Let them fail. <laughs> I think that's what people keep screaming. And it's like you got to so many things have to change you know like fundamentally like the loans that are going out too it's like well the reason why prices keep going up and up and up is because these banks and ultimately the government are giving these loans to anyone and everyone and so it's like well of course the college is going to take the free money yeah yeah i mean you know the the people you know the you can hear what I'm saying and you're like, oh my goodness, when is the future of education going to arrive? I'm so worried. The future of education arrived 10 years ago. It's called YouTube.com. It's called YouTube.com. <laughs> it's called the internet. Basically, whatever you want to learn, it's right there for you. Mm -hmm. And the only barrier between you and where you want to be when it comes to learning, it starts with a D and it ends with discipline hmm. and that is now the binding constraint hmm. on getting people skilled who have access to an internet connection and the time to actually learn what would you say to the people who say hey i need the structure of college what would you say to the people who are struggling with that discipline to self-learn yeah, it's, you know, it's tricky because I have some people who I'm very close to who say exactly that. And so there's one t tack on this that I say, well, toughen up. You know, you have all of these amazing opportunities right at your fingers. Um, team up with some friends, have set some kind of a learning plan. I always say that people, it, it, it's wild to me. You know, if you look at LeBron James's statistics of his field goal shooting percentage, his first year in the NBA, shot like 46. He was at 58% field goal shooting percentage in seven, eight years. That was because he hired a coach. He showed up to practice every day. He set a dedicated health and fitness plan to improve his skills. Why don't knowledge workers do this? People are trying to learn how to code. They're trying to learn how to use Excel really well. How many of those people are learning like an athlete? How many of them are actually setting these regimented goals? The answer is very few. So one answer on this is toughen up. The second one, which I'm also sympathetic to, but not... I, I, I don't want this to be an excuse for everybody, is that we have trained people to be very dependent and have basically neutered their their evolutionarily driven drive to actually go on and pursue opportunities on their own. And that's a problem. But at the same time, if you have been trained for the first two decades of your life to only do things that are clearly on the syllabus, to only go to the after-school dance that your mom has planned for you, to only go to the birthday parties that your dad is arranging, then I can totally see how it's very hard for you to figure those things out. And that is that is a challenge. So I think that the answer is somewhere in between, but you have all the tools right there and it's important for people to take agency themselves because of what you can do with all the world's information in your pocket now. Are you a dropout? No, I okay. graduated. Okay, okay. <laughs> I threw the tassel from right to left, threw the hat in the sky and said hallelujah. Okay. I did it. Debt? Do you still have debt? 
no debt. No debt. Okay, good. No debt. Good, good, good. Because um, I was about to say, oh, you're, we're three college dropouts here. Or you didn't even go? I didn't even start. Yeah, Nick didn't yeah, even. Didn't Nick, go. he yeah. figured it out, man. Yeah. He was like, I'm not even starting this. To be fair to Nick, and I say this with love, he wouldn't have lasted a day in college. He didn't have a choice. He didn't have a choice. Which is great that you had that self-awareness, though, because I I think, I mean, still in 2012 when I graduated high school, I didn't think that there was an option, right? And so it took me three years to even come to that conclusion, and it literally wasn't until I watched a Gary Vee video where he just said something super simple to a question someone had, why do you have to stay in college? And I was like, wait, that's an option? Yeah. Interesting, you know? And then, so I think it just starts, that's why people are probably getting very annoyed how much I talk about this. But it's like, this is the hill that I'm going to die on. If I can get someone to not go 100K into debt for something that they hate, then I have done my job. (laughs) Well, the other thing that I would say is there's, a lot of alternative forms to college and so community college is wildly underrated that's what i keep saying to people you should watch these videos that i've made i'm like if you feel like college if you feel like you don't know what you need to do and you need to explore a little bit guess what you can spend 2k for a semester instead of 10 20 30 40. yeah I mean, I took David's school recently, so I graduated from something. (laughs) Are you a better writer now? Uh, Definitely. I think the other thing I learned from David's school was how to gather knowledge Mm. in a more organized way, because I'm very disorganized with the way I consume content. Right. But now I have a very strict regimen. If I find something I want to read, there's a process of how I read it so that I can... Hmm. access that knowledge later so does that mean a regular reading schedule what is no not at all it just means so if i see a you know uh an article come out that i want to read i will save it to instapaper then on my own time i'll go to instapaper read the article i can highlight things that are interesting and then that automatically saves into evernote and whenever i want to reference it again later or you know, look up something around the topic of what I read, then those highlights come back. Hmm, that's cool. Um, which well, just makes it much easier. You got some process, Nick. You got some process. Evernote. You know? What's that called? Instapaper? Instapaper to Evernote. But there's there's a plug-in between that. Yeah, so I have a workshop called the Smart Sync Workshop that is free on YouTube. Wow. So it's one hour long and you will see the entire system. We can put it in the show notes, Smart mm-hmm. Sync Workshop, and you will see exactly what Nick is talking about. Amazing. This system is a cheat code, Sarah. What is the plugin in between? So basically, it's a app called Readwise, which is an API integration. So it's super cutting edge. So it's a bit of a cut and paste sort of duct tape kind of solution. But if you can imagine every single, all the best of what you read saved in your pocket instantly accessible for the rest of your life that is what i teach people how to do and then help them turn that into writing you know it always mind boggles me one of the things that i strongly believe in is never do the same thinking twice if you don't have to so if you've read something and you've had a thought that's 
that's intelligent, capture it down, save it in a solid note-taking app that has instant search functionality, and boom, in 30 years, you can access that same idea. And that way, what you end up doing is you get a lot more mileage from your ideas because you don't have to go and recreate them. And so for me, using this system, I'll publish three and a half books this year, as I said before, and I don't write for more than 10 hours a week. So I am extremely efficient in what I'm able to do. And part of it comes from a writing system, but also part of it, the most, the biggest thing that people get wrong in terms of trying to learn how to write, how can I learn to write? Oh, I'm gonna go read Stephen King's On Writing or Anne Lamott's Bird by Bird. The biggest thing holding people back from writing better is having a note-taking system. Writing is not nearly as hard as people say, but the entire education system for writing was built before note-taking systems existed. And that right there is the it's secret. It's fascinating to me that you said you only write 10 hours a week. Yeah. If that. Really? I'll do maybe six hours this week. So is it the fact that you sit down and instantly you're in it? Like, I'm so in it. My process is dialed down. Yeah. It's the same ones I teach my students. And I have that process. I sit down at my computer. So I compile exactly what I need zero to. Zero friction. And boom, zero friction. I'm in a flow state in three minutes. I set at, I do for at most 90 minutes. I never write for more than 90 minutes a day. And I set a really ambitious goal for myself and I get in the flow. I turn on the kind of music that I, same music when I write mm -hmm. versus listening or versus working out at the gym. It is the same state of mind. It is let's get after it. Let's go and let's accomplish so much in a super short amount of time. Interesting. I wish I could limit my video editing to 10 hours a week. Um, Nick, you've been on the West Coast and now recently the East Coast. Um, and so recently I posted a apartment tour and with that people are always triggered with why do you pay that much in New York City um, and the argument that I never want to get in because I've made one video and I'm done talking about it is certain cities afford you certain opportunities that just make it worth it mm -hmm. and so it'd be interesting to hear some of the differences maybe what you like better what you don't like as much of san francisco versus new york because um they're very different but i think they're on a very similar playing field in terms of opportunities it's just different industries yeah let me go to the bathroom real quick go to the restroom okay I got you can i mean I you want to answer it yeah. yeah you can keep going um i mean in san francisco my favorite spot was the airport and <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. I just wasn't that big of a fan of the city. I think probably because the industries that I work within were not necessarily a priority there. It was more tech and code and, um, you know, Hint was there, but that was kind of an anomaly. Um, I find New York a lot more fun. I find it a lot more culturally diverse. I find it a lot more happening. There's always things to do. Um, I find it a lot more... Um, there's a lot more art here in mm -hmm. New York with music and, and like content creators and even just artists like murals on the walls everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot more fashion and style. I just, I like the, it, New York is like, it's for somebody to get to New York, you have to hit some kind of level of success prior to getting here. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really, 
highly qualified melting pot of so many industries that I personally relate to. We just so happen to be on this really tiny island together. Yeah. That's all stacked up. Which is all stacked up. So you're going to be bumping shoulders. Yeah. And that's when, you know, I, I mean, if you look at like people who complain about rent, compare it to, oh, but... You know, in Idaho, you can get a house for this. And it's like, cool, Dude. go live in Idaho and make that kind of money to get a house like that. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's it's the tax of living here. And it's also, in my opinion, I think it's great because it it's, um, what's that? Um, survival of the fittest, yeah. right? It's like, if you can't If you can make it here, you can make you can't it anywhere. Make it, then yeah. You kind of you move out and you yeah. know maybe you try something else but there's no room for complacency here yeah no room for complacency and there's a one thing i actually noticed which was interesting there is in san francisco it's all about a who's who it's mm-hmm. like oh what startup does that guy have how much money has he raised you know who are his uh vcs whatever over here it's like I mean, just what are you doing? the same thing, but it's also like, what are you doing? Yeah. And everybody here is hustling. Like everyone here is working so hard and there's a very, um, there's a very mutual respect between a lot of people, mm-hmm. regardless of what stage they might be in life yeah. or financially or whatever. Everybody's like working really hard here. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, I, and I don't know. I appreciate that. Cause yeah. that's I what that's I touched what on. I built myself on totally on the last podcast was, really if you have something interesting going on in your life or maybe you have a somewhat unique skill i mean there's so many people who are willing to give shots here we're all just trying to you know make our things and if you come here and you you want to maybe you're willing to help someone on something um i think it's the one city that you can do the apprenticeship thing really quick and you could get to exactly where you need to go yeah. in literally a year. I mean, wow. Some people think of the college process of four years and then maybe an apprenticeship or four years and then maybe your master's and then you apprentice and you get your first job. And, um, do you mean internship? Do I what? Do you mean internship or apprenticeship? Uh, both. Okay. I mean, I in the creative field, I more think of it as like a, an apprenticeship with Got like it. a specific person. I guess that's how I differentiate those words i'm not talking about internship getting coffee at freaking vogue right you're you're probably not gonna be doing anything special you know um but if you can really get into it with maybe a five-person digital agency and they're really hands-on i mean you could be doing really important stuff if you can prove yourself and and i think there's more opportunities for that in those circumstances so you got to do a little bit of work up front figure out what people are doing and, and the right places to go but um yeah i I like the city a lot. Same. <laughs> I don't know? see myself moving anytime soon. Yeah, yeah. What about you, David? Let me get on my soapbox a little. <laughs> uh, I'm obsessed with this question. Um, I am obsessed with what's happening in cities right now. And I could go, I'll sort of give my theory and then I will give, th- I think Nick did a really good job of talking about the qualitative ideas of cities. Um I can provide some of the quantitative empirical data around cities. So cities are merry-go-rounds. 
if you look at a merry-go-round, you get on the merry-go-round, and the merry-go-round goes around, and you're in something together with people, and you expend very little energy to go fairly fast, and you see all of these new, these these new things, and there's horses, and there's donkeys, and all this sort of stuff, and there's all these cool things on merry-go-rounds that are like the coolest things at the park, right? They're like well-designed and stuff like that, and you always get on and it's just like kind of a party, right? Cities are the same way. But the problem is the merry-go-round spins really fast. And what you're seeing is that once you get on the merry-go-round, just like what Nick said, well, you have access to all these amazing opportunities. People, everyone comes into, it seems like everyone comes into New York who is of, of any bit of importance a couple times a year, and they will then reach out to go meet with you. Nick is able to meet He's at the epicenter of the direct-to-consumer industry, and what Nick has is access to through parties of being able to talk to these people. So just like a merry-go-round, the city is moving really fast, and by virtue of being here and being in this ambient flow of New York City, he has access to all the different people on the merry-go-round. The problem is the merry-go-round, well, the problem and the good thing is that the merry-go-round is spinning faster and faster. So on the positive side, you have that cities are becoming even bigger hotbeds of economic opportunity. Cities have, uh, since the 1970s, we have seen a concentration in terms of wealth creation. For example, the top 25 metro areas have experienced more than half of the growth of the $19.5 trillion of American GDP. So what you're seeing is this concentration in cities. In Texas, where you're from, Houston, Austin, Dallas, and San Antonio have been have grown so much that across the four in the last 10 years, they have grown as much as the city of Seattle. Wow. They have added that big population to those four cities, whereas the metro areas in Texas have decreased. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing is I spent this summer 18 days metro in- Metro as in the, the, the suburbs? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the smaller ones. Thanks for the clarification. I spent just to go study this firsthand i spent 18 days in michigan this summer went to every single major city in michigan with the exception of flint in in 1942 detroit had a bigger economy than every single uh, country in the world with the exception of great britain russia and germany And now part of that was that a lot of the military manufacturing came in and moved to the Ford factories during the war. And so there was actually an inflation in Detroit um, productivity there. But my point is cities are now seeing this explosion. And that's because knowledge workers, people who work in creative industries like yourself and like Nick, they benefit from this clustering idea. So economists call this agglomeration effects. Normal people call it clustering. When you're around other smart people, people who are also creative, then you become more creative. Now, the problem is the actual cost of living in cities has gone up a ton. So what you have is in places like San Francisco, the average, the median home price has like doubled in the last eight years of San Francisco housing. That's how you have the people who watch your video say, Sarah, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. It is getting so expensive there. And it's because we are not allowing a lot of new building in our city. So the first problem 
right I would there. Think, isn't isn't that more primarily San Francisco than New York though? I New mean, York here too. Really? New York too. Well, I feel like we're seeing new buildings come up everywhere. True, but compared to the actual increased demand gotcha. for people living here, enough. it's very slow. Okay. So, so okay, so you're like, okay, how do we fix housing prices and the cost of cities? That's the real reason why people can't live here. You saw this with your videos. So there's two things. So the first is letting more people on the merry-go-round and you could have that new york has a very large minimum apartment size so like in a place like paris or hong kong the average the 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 minimum amount of space that you can live in is much smaller and so that is one thing we could do we could also allow more building fact of the matter is that's not going to change it 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 just isn't there are very strong incentives from homeowners to not allow new building because that inflates the value of their homes and they don't want to do that the other one that i think is more interesting and counterintuitive is to increase transportation speeds in 1996 there was a crash on the Williamsburg Bridge where a train crashed into the one in front of it. One person died. The conductor, there were a couple injuries. Since then, we have slowed down transportation speeds across the entire MTA, and we still haven't increased them. So the New York subway system has actually gotten slower in the last 20 years, and more than half of New York subways on the 456 line are delayed on your average weekday. In Hong Kong, if a train is more than eight minutes late, they have to report the reason why to the government. That is how good their subway system is. And if we had faster transportation, what we would be able to do is have people live farther away from cities and commute in. But because we don't have fast transportation and we're not allowing new building, we can't get more people on this merry-go-round. We're car obsessed, though. So how do you change that? I mean, everyone knows that our train system is a shit show and it could be light years better, but everyone just says it's the system. It doesn't allow it. No one wants to invest in the railways and the Amtrak and, um, you know, even beyond just subways. And so it's like, well, how do you fight an entire system that's been put in place since they were cranking out the cars in the 40s in Detroit? Because everything it seems like revolves around the auto industry right well there are solutions to this they are just very politically difficult to do if you look at singapore they had some major traffic problems they instituted a congestion tax Hmm. meaning that and we have one for taxis in new york um i was looking at the data last night but under 96th street if you start a cab ride, you just pay a flat fee to basically increase the cost of that ride, which theoretically decreases the amount of cabs on the road. But, you know, it still costs $15 to commute between New Jersey and New York. But still, we could have a bigger tax on people who are in New York. The Washington Bridge has the worst traffic of any place in all of America for 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 roads and it's getting worse now because we have the ups and the fedex trucks who are blocking lanes so a congestion tax basically a tax on on driving in cities would make people drive less but it's very unpopular and hard to do in america in a city of taxes in New York is more taxes the answer. I mean, like, it really comes to, when you say the crazy growth in Texas, Texas taxes are 
nothing. Nothing. There's a reason why Toyota has moved their entire HQ down to Texas. There's a reason Charles why Charles Schwab just left San of, Francisco. Okay, all of these companies are moving to Texas because they're very um, business friendly, and you know, it's there's space, which is one thing, um, but there's a. I think there's something to say politically too where it's like you have these and maybe it's because they're able to have these certain policies because again in texas you have more room than in new york right in new york it's literally a space issue it's like there's limited space yeah so there's uh there's an idea that i really like so if you look at the entrepreneurs who so there's people like us who uh so in general this very general statement but people who get paid in equity are in san francisco and new york that's just where the high growth companies are. People who get paid in cash are moving to Texas. People like Tim Ferriss, well, Ryan Holiday, because yeah. of capital gains. So you actually Tax see lower. in terms of the kinds of entrepreneurs who live in each city, it is very responsive to the tax code. Mm -hmm. And that's why so many people are moving to Austin. But almost all the entrepreneurs who are moving to Austin that I know have businesses that spin off cash because of exactly this right for someone who's obsessed with the internet and the companies that are springing from this i say new digital age but we've been here for the past five years we've been in this crazy dtc youtube influencers i mean we've arrived right um, in terms of the certain skills and how you personally learn to be relevant in this industry um, you didn't go to college there wasn't a playbook for what you do now of course you worked in other businesses and i'm sure those were great like training grounds and, and practical experience but um for people who want to get into not just consulting but maybe they want to be that cmo one day they want to be that lead person who's not just you know working on creative and how paid marketing is doing but working on overall strategy like what do you think are the steps even though i know there's not a playbook how can people get closer to that well i actually get this question all the time um i think there's a couple ways one is you um you just read a ton of things and some people are readers and that works then there is you show up to events and you talk with real people. Um, you know, you talk to people in the industry, you talk to other CMOs, you talk to founders, you talk to the people that would hire for these roles, you talk to the people in those roles. Um, and then the third way, which I think is the best, is you just like in this industry and many like it, there's not enough people within the industry that talk about the industry. And so, um, you know, you write and you get eyeballs looking at you. And I think that is honestly the only differentiator between me and a lot of other people that right. might do the same thing is like, you I don't will, have a seat at the table. You're making the table. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, <laughs> just this week, like, I mean, it happens all the time where, where I will get in touch with people that I would have never thought that I would be like getting asked to go get coffee with these people. Um, and it's all because I put stuff out on the internet and people either resonate with it or they find it funny or they find it interesting or they find it relatable. And um, yeah, I mean, the other thing I think that is very unique to me personally is I... And David can verify this. I don't read. 
really much of anything. Um, whether it's books by people who've been in the industry or whether it's like really long form, thoughtful pieces. I rarely read industry newsletters. Um, all of my knowledge comes from observation of just crawling the internet on my own time or, um, just going out and talking to people. And, you know, I, <laughs> through the Chacha Macha partnership, have a, a free lifetime card of Chacha Macha. And so I just go, I offer free matcha to anybody and everybody like this week, you know, the CMO of Hims and the CMO of Freshly were like, yeah, let's go get matcha you know, all the way to like DJs who tour the world because they're really good at what they do. It's like, you know, I just, talk, I just try and talk to as many people as possible. And that's where, that's where I do most of my learning. I think this is really important because Nick and I are extremely good friends and I am like a read and write about it and also talk to person. But Nick and I have such a different learning strategy and when I was talking earlier about not imitating what other people are doing, Nick, because he doesn't read, actually doesn't even know where the center of gravity is in direct-to-consumer. And you end up copying the people whose stuff you consume subconsciously. And because Nick doesn't do something that is recommended and almost said to be mandatory by everybody, he has an advantage. And I think that is such a beautiful thing. Because what Nick is doing, he's actually observing things with his own eyes, which is wildly underrated. I mean, you go to all of these conferences and it's like the future of TikTok marketing and you go survey the average person in the audience who's never downloaded TikTok. And it's like, okay, so you want to go learn from this thought leader, just observe yourself with your own eyes. And it's weird because in I've been wondering what's going on here, this like serial devaluing of intuition where people don't trust themselves and we don't trust people who do things intuitively as much as we used to and i am a believer in intuition if you are observing and you're looking out at the world trust yourself to have ideas the and the system doesn't reward that though people have to go sit in a classroom and learn from their thought leader on how to think this is what i like Nick <laughs> so it's a train people have to train themselves how to do that retrain themselves yeah. like humans are good at this nick was never indoctrinated into the school dogma mm -hmm. because it never worked for him and it's just a beautiful thing to watch nick just look at the world in front of him and say that's wrong that's good we need less of that more of that boom here's an opportunity and it's something that we need more of in the world yes so good David's my uh, hype man on the side. I love it. <laughs> you just need to take him with you everywhere. Yeah. So, so Nick does one thing that I always admire, and it's not what I do. So what I do is I go into the past, and I look in weird places in the modern internet. I have something. And look for like, just yeah. crazy ideas that nobody is talking about. You know, I was talking earlier about the spotlight where I always think, what is the spotlight? So what is everybody looking at? Everyone, you know, a lot of people are looking at Gary Vee. A lot of people are looking at national politics. A lot of people are looking at the China America thing. A lot of people are looking at artificial intelligence. So I say, okay, I'm not going to look there as much. I am fascinated 
affected in in particular by media theory from 1960s to 1970s there are so many forgotten ideas there that nobody is talking about and so i say look i'm not above copying people like if 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 everyone's going to be imitating Gary Vee, I'm going to be imitating other people. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go imitate the forgotten people, the 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 serially underestimated people and bring their ideas back and actually borrow from them. You know, I I study Patrick Collison a lot, who is the CEO of Stripe, which is, you know, the big Silicon Valley company. And having spent some time with him, one of the big things that I've learned is he isn't trying to come up with every idea himself. He's like, why should I? And what he's doing in terms of building what I think is going to be known as the most operationally efficient company in the world. I mean, you walk into Stripe headquarters and you're just like, this place is special. I got a text today from somebody who said, Stripe headquarters is the coolest place I've ever been. Why, it, it, why it, is it's, that? It's special. It has an intellectual curiosity that is like, if Disneyland was a library, it would be Stripe. Mm. It has this, 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 just this full-on ambition to 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 build products that allow people to use the internet to create economic opportunity for themselves. Hmm. It is a special place. Are they and, doing more than just a payment API? Yeah, or, a lot okay. more, a lot more. So they're through Stripe Atlas, I helping companies so from special. around the world incubate in, in America. Okay. I think Stripe is the most special company in the world right now. And what I've learned from, from, from Patrick is that he is trying to go back, sort of like what I was saying earlier, and look at the ways of organizational management that we've actually forgotten. In nine years, from 1961, John F. Kennedy does a talk at Rice University in Houston and says, we're going to put a man on the mood before <laughs> the end of the decade, yeah. not because it's easy, but because it's hard. He and did. by 1969, we had a man walking on the moon that is crazy we had we had park palo alto research center we had bell labs we had arpa we had all of these amazing big organizations and we've forgotten that wisdom and he has gone back and actually borrowed from them and so where Nick is really looking at intuition, what I'm obsessed with is finding the forgotten ideas and bringing them into the future. That's so sick. I was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast, I think, with Ken Burns, the mm. classic documentary filmmaker. It was such a good podcast. I've challenged everyone to listen to it. But the thing that really stood out to me from it, which resonated so much with me, is he said back in the 80s, I think it was the 80s, everyone was watching two-minute MTV music videos and no one had the attention span so even back in the day they were having that conversation of Ken no one's gonna watch a 10-part one-hour docu-series on World War II no one's gonna watch that because all the kids are on MTV watching two-minute music videos and oh my gosh I mean like well first of all look at his career he did fine I mean he proved that educational meaningful content there is a need for that but even guys back in the 80s 70s 60s people were like oh no long form content what the kids are just watching music videos you know so I think like what you're saying there's so many different themes that even in the past they're just reoccurring even with the rise of social media everyone's like what long form are you kidding me 
Everyone's watching 60 second videos on Instagram and Twitter and GIFs, that's all they need. But then we've seen this rise of really long form content where people need it, they crave it. And so whatever people are saying, oh, you can't do this because this is normal is well time and time again has proven that's not you know the most on point thing i think it was dwight eisenhower who american president who campaigned for the radio to not become a commercial medium Hmm. because he thought that radio was the best tool ever invented for learning at scale what ended up happening was radio became very commercialized the snippets got shorter and shorter. We It got distributed to a broader and broader audience. And 100 years later, long-form podcasting, right now you are engaging in what very well might be the single best tool for human education at scale ever created. Long-form podcasting is going to change our politics for the positive. It's going to allow people to realize that the lecture that they can get in their ear while walking to and from school is better than anything they got while they were sitting in their seat at school. They're going to realize that this is going to be the gateway drug, long-form podcasting, to the what you can do learning on the internet. I love that. Transformative medium. Mm-hmm. And you're engaging in it right now. Yeah. Did you have any thoughts on any of that? I felt like you grabbed um, for the mic. <laughs> no. Any not closing really. thoughts, Nick? Closing thoughts. Um, <clears throat> let's see. This year, I've learned the value of hard work and taking mm-hmm. care of yourself, and I encourage people to focus on those two first, mm-hmm. and then focus on socializing and having fun. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, something I learned from David is. Um, this is so random now, but uh, <laughs> hanging with friends in smaller settings for longer periods of time versus larger settings and shorter periods of time is a lot more beneficial and better use of time. There's a lot better context and um, conversation. Okay. And I've found that it, uh, even when you move those relationships into group settings, they're much stronger group settings. Mm -hmm. But over to David for his random thoughts. Well, (laughs) I only hang out with people basically in groups of two or three. This is only, so like this is almost a hard rule for two hours or more. Mm -hmm. So I do a couple little coffee meetings here and now, but Nick and I went to Chicago. We did an entire weekend. I'm doing five days with a friend in Florida around the new year. I did three hours with a friend last night. I only hang out with people for extremely long amounts of time because what you realize is it takes an hour just to kind of get warmed up with somebody. And unfortunately, the Google Calendar invite defaults to 30 minutes or an hour. Mm -hmm. So that's what most people do for hanging out. I try to spend a lot of time alone every day and then one really long chunk of time with somebody almost every single day. And it's made my relationship so much deeper. You do that every day? Basically every single day. Wow. I'm, I'm doing... 
on on Sunday doing five hours with somebody. I did four days with one friend in Michigan this summer, six days with another friend in Michigan this summer. I love that you approach relationships and friendships tactically because you almost have to in the world of of scheduling. Friendship is so important to me. Yeah, that's cool. And the way that society tells you to be friends with people, I think leads to really empty relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that depth and 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 time is what you need to really begin to appreciate somebody because all of us wear masks we all have a shield over ourselves to try to communicate the person that we want other people to think we are and it is only with that time that you can break through the facade that everyone is putting on but actually come to love the other person for who they actually are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hack it by being like, hey, I have a podcast. It's like an hour, hour and a half. Come be in my podcast and we can talk so I can get some content out of it. It works. <laughs> yeah, you know, that works. Um, what are the two, three, four things that people should um, find you guys on after this? Um, my two go-tos, one's Twitter, MR or Mr. Sharma. MR Sharma, Mr. Sharma. And then the um, the one I'm more active on is my community phone number. And that phone number is 917-905-2340. Amazing. I got to make a jingle out of it. I love that. Though you're, there's a little bit of transparency there where you're like, it's my community phone number. Because yeah. celebrities are promoting this like it's the real like phone it's number. number and it's, it's just people are yeah. feeling scammed, you no, know? It's, um, I'm actually very, very transparent about it. Um, because because there's like they know yeah you know it's not like i'm putting my yeah exactly when you cell phone number when you get yeah you know when you get that bounce back message of sign up here at community one automated message and then everything else is just me yeah yeah but um yeah that's where i try and spend like an hour two hours a day on there love it yeah just responding to everybody that's dope for me I check out my course, Rite of Passage. Nick was talking about how writing on the internet is how he gets all of these amazing opportunities. I have systematized writing on the internet into a education system. It's very intense, but it exists nowhere else, and the results have just been fantastic. Perel.com, P-E-R-E-L-L.com is my website. You can read all my writing there. I have a podcast called the North Star Podcast, and I'm on Twitter at David underscore Perel. Amazing. Guys, thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Sarah. (laughs) If y'all enjoyed this podcast, leave me that review on the Apple Podcast. We start out every episode with a shout out to one of you and the Peachy fam. If you leave a review... And uh, what's a code word people can put in the review so we know they heard this episode? Um, filthy. Filthy. <laughs> if you leave a review and mention the word filthy, uh, one month from the date this podcast comes out, David and I will each send two people $100 each on Venmo. So wow. four people will get $100. How are and you going to get in touch with these people? Should they put they, their Venmo? Um, it's going to look like I'm I'm paying people for reviews. Well, then. no, David and I are paying people for your reviews. I know, but how are so, you going to get their, their Venmo? We'll, we'll figure out how to... You're going to text me okay. or, or <laughs> tweet David or tweet me 
and and we're gonna Venmo out four hundred dollars okay, for reviews. So how about we put a little bit of process behind this? People can leave the review and then they just screenshot it and then tweet it to Nick and David. Perfect. I think that's the best way to yeah. do it. All right. I'm saving two hundred bucks. Four hundred dollars on the table. <laughs> uh, wow, this takes, is. I what, love 10 this, seconds guys. To write a review. Thank. Yeah, it takes ten seconds, and you no longer, if you want to use the word filthy, you can. But since you're tweeting at them, you know you don't have to if it doesn't fit in the in the review. I'm, <laughs> I'm in. Like, <laughs> amazing. I love it. Um, that and then I'm also it. I'm keeping it going through the first week of January. If you sign up for my monthly newsletter, which probably won't even get to you every month because I don't get around to it, um, I'm using it as a form one to make sure I have all of you guys on my email if YouTube deletes my channel one day. But two, I'm sending out free peachy merch to five people every single week from this email list I'm picking at random. So I'm just sending free peachy merch free that creative life merch to y'all um but thank you so much for listening that creative life every single monday make sure you're subscribed on apple Podcasts, spotify google Podcasts, wherever you listen to okay what you guys thought just because it was a long episode i wasn't gonna slide in and answer some twitter questions what no false fake news i am here answering two twitter questions and a reminder that you can just tag me on twitter just at sarah dietschy ask me a question and then put hashtag that creative life at the end and I go through your questions and I answer them at the end of these podcasts. The first one is more of a comment from Flavio. Very cool name. He says, just an observation. Why doesn't John become a part of the podcast instead of appearing on an isolated episode as a guest? You guys are great together and I had a lot of fun listening to the last episode. Well, thank you. Those are very kind words. Um, and if you guys didn't listen to the last episode, it was just me and John and we jammed. And so you can probably tell the the difference when I do podcasts with people who I know dearly uh, and maybe I need to have them more on the podcast. I, I don't think it's uh, totally feasible to have John on every single week just because, you know, he's a busy boy. He does his own thing making the YouTube videos, but uh, maybe we make it a once a month thing. I would love to have people like Joe Franco. We recently did a video together and just, you know, when you meet people and you just jam and it's just a good time for everyone, and you spit the truth, and yeah, that's that's kind of, you know, what I feel with Joe and John and, and a few other people in this industry, so maybe we can have some more reoccurring guests, um, you know, the vibe of maybe a rotation of, uh, you know, kind of a co-host vibe. Let me know what you guys think. Do you listen to podcasts that rely heavily on co-host? I think that's that's an interesting idea. I guess the hard part is just locking down those people, right? And then for the second question, we have Ellie at Valentini underscore Ellie with a Y. We talk on the Twitter a lot. She says, would love to see a day in the life video or your or vlogging the shooting process. Um, I haven't done a day in the life video in a while because I, I actually have absolutely no rhyme or rhythm to my life right now. It's just like straight up chaos. And luckily through the process of hiring people, I've been forced to sit down and, and really change that. So, you know, I'm looking towards 2020. That's going to be my year, guys. I'm going to be organized. I'm going to have process written out to where I'm not stuck like I am this past month where I just got off of a flow with a podcast. I ran out of a back catalog 
of the content because usually I'll shoot literally like eight episodes in the span of one week or two weeks and then I'll just have an editor do all of them and prepare them for upload. And so when I run out of time to do that, or I run out of the, the batching of recordings, uh, you know, I can kind of get behind. So that's really when documenting your process comes in handy. So I could just give a last minute editor, you know, one document on how to, how to edit my podcast and they could just get it done in a day and boom, don't have to worry about anything. So maybe a day in the life video will come about in 2020 when I have figured out my life. Wouldn't that be nice? I think that would be nice. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening. As I said before, make sure you're subscribed on all of the platforms and it's, it's Christmas time. It's the holiday time, whatever you celebrate, how exciting. Um, I will be going back to Texas. Maybe we need another episode with Jeannie. Who's down for that? I don't know. We'll see. We'll have to see. Until next time, guys, stay peachy. Keep creating. See you in the next one.